Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Kuitis. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the original leaders in the Greenpeace movement, and now author, skeptic, and public speaker. We start with the stark findings of an international team of scientists led by the UK Met Office, which raised profound questions about the future of the Earth's climate. The team says that a prolonged heat wave in the Siberian Arctic this year is unequivocal evidence of climate change and that the record high temperatures in Siberia would be impossible without man-made global warming. Findings are of serious concern because here in the UK and the rest of Europe, the Arctic drives much of the weather that we experience. This certainly is. That's certainly what the scientists are saying, Hugh. Let's be clear, though. The Arctic does often really get very warm in the summer, but this extreme temperature Siberia experienced over six months was, the scientists say, completely unprecedented. Their study concluded that the chances of it happening without man-made climate change was one in every 80 years. And that's why they're saying it was almost impossible unless the world had been warmed by greenhouse gas emissions. They say this is the strongest climate link to any weather event they've looked at. And this was a big team of scientists from six countries. They describe the Siberian heatwave as unequivocal evidence of the influence of human-induced climate change on the planet. It doesn't get much clearer than that, Hugh. No. Justin, many thanks once again. Justin Rollout there for us, our Chief Environment Correspondent. Patrick, thank you for being a part of D-Next and congratulations on the book. I like D-Next, that's very good. Um, th thanks for uh, reading part of my book uh, so you get an idea of what I'm about. Uh, the title of course is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And what I'm getting at there is that it dawned on me not that long ago, actually. I've been talking about the invisible poisons for a long time because people are always being scared by radiation and whatever the invisible thing in GMOs is and oh, pesticide residues in food, uh, plastic. Uh, apparently there's some invisible poison there, even though we wrap all our food in it. Uh, so fake invisible catastrophes refers largely to carbon dioxide because most of the most of the scare stories today are based on the climate change narrative that carbon dioxide is going to make the world unlivable and that even Canadians will have to flee further north. Um, that's the, the book is also about things that are remote, invisible and or remote. And remote things include polar bears and coral reefs, two of the most iconic scare stories in the environmental uh, narrative. And People can't go and check for themselves if something is invisible or remote. That's the whole thesis of the book. Therefore, they depend on the media, the activists, the politicians, and the scientists who are on serial government grants studying these things, apparently. Uh, odd, oddly enough, they say the science is settled, but at the end of every paper they say, and much more research must be done in order to get to the bottom of this, and I need another grant next year. And so that's who they depend on, people who all who have a huge stake in the game. They got skin in the game. And we're supposed to expect the truth from them, even though telling us lies 
often makes them a lot more popular and makes them a lot more money than if they actually told us the truth. Uh, let's start with polar bears, for example. There's okay. a story that polar bears are going to go extinct in this century due to the loss of ice in the Arctic. And this is blamed on carbon dioxide and climate change. Nobody ever talks about the treaty that was signed in 1973 between all the polar nations ending the unrestricted hunting of polar bears. By this time, it became clear that there was overhunting of those bears for people to get rugs or wall coverings, and uh, it was stopped. And nowadays, very few polar bears are hunted, mainly only by indigenous people. And in, in Norway, for example, it was banned altogether. Since that time, the polar bear population has quadrupled or quintupled from 6,000 to 30,000. That is a fact that that's all documented. And the, 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 the odd thing about it is that even though the Inuit people of the capital Iqaluit, uh, the government of Nunavut, passed a law last fall for the management of polar bears, meaning if they're trying to kill you, you can kill them because they've been losing people to polar bears because there's so many of them. And this was, when, when they passed that Management Act, which is an act of their parliament, the only place the story was printed was in a Nunavut newspaper where there's 1,200 people. The Canadian population did not find out that the people who live there year round in little villages are scared of the polar bears because there's so many of them. So it's the exact opposite of what people are saying. Take the coral reefs. We heard in the spring of 2016 that 93% of the Great Barrier Reef was dying, terminally ill, uh, all kinds of expressions were used, none of which actually meant dead, but they were implying that it was dead or that it was gonna be dead in the next five minutes. And yet, they make it seem as though the oceans are getting too hot for coral reefs. A very good paper has been written showing that the highest biodiversity in all the world's oceans is in the coral triangle of Indonesia and Philippines, the warmest oceans in the world. That has the highest biodiversity of coral reefs and the highest biodiversity of reef fish on the planet. In fact, many coastlines, especially in the north and far south, don't have any coral reefs or any corals even, no species of coral living in them because they're too cold. But the highest biodiversity is in the warmest oceans. So in fact, as the world has cooled for the last 50 million years since the Eocene thermal maximum 50 million years ago, and especially now that we're in the Pleistocene Ice Age where the world is colder than it has been for 250 million years. And CO2 is lower than it has been since the beginning of the Earth, like since the beginning of life. Uh, these are the ironies of this whole thing. CO2 is too high and it's getting too hot. There's no possibility that those are true because we know the pattern of CO2 levels in the atmosphere through ocean sediment analysis going back hundreds of millions of years. And we know the recent temperatures by ice cores going back 800,000 years. So the truth is the Coral Triangle is a refuge for corals because it's warm enough for 600 species of them, by far the most of anywhere in the world. It's all available for people to see. 
And yet there's in people's minds, because they've been told this by all the huge news networks and all kind of politicians and activists, and, and they've been told that the coral reefs are dying. They've been told that the polar bears are going extinct when the exact opposite is true. Okay, so just to be... And I'm sticking to it. Okay, well, just to be clear then, in your professional opinion, are we or are we not in a climate crisis? And how would you define that? We are not in a climate crisis. The climate today worldwide is no different, no, no far out of line at all, not, in, not out of line in any way from the last 10,000 years of this Holocene interglacial period. This is one of 45 interglacial periods that have occurred during the Pleistocene Ice Age, which is said to have started, it's arbitrary you know, when you pick a date when, because it was getting colder for 50 million years. But finally, 2.6 million years ago, the Arctic froze over for the first time in 250 million years. And they said there, that's the beginning of this new ice age. And since then, there have been 45 advances of the ice, some bigger than others, but in cycles initially of 42,000 years, which coincides with the Milankovitch cycle of the tilt of the earth on its axis. And recently, the last 1 million years, on the cycle of 100,000 years, in coordination with the Milankovitch cycle as the change in the shape of the Earth's orbit around the Sun from more elliptical to less elliptical. These things, the tilt of the Earth and the shape of the, of the orbit, can affect the amount of sunlight that reaches higher latitudes and that reaches the Earth in general because the Sun gets closer and then further away. And it's very clear that they are so perfectly correlated that they are tied into the Milankovitch cycles, which are caused by the gravitational effect of Jupiter and Saturn in these 42,000 and 100,000 year cycles. Nobody's learning this today. It's, you can go on Wikipedia if you know the word Milankovitch cycle and find a huge entry on this subject of all three of the Milankovitch cycles. The other one is the wobble of the tilt so the North Star will not always be the North Star. It's a 26,000 year cycle, I think, where the, 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 a different, you know, the, 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 the place the Earth is pointing on its axis changes on a wobble of 26,000 years. All these, you know, we, we know a few of the cycles. We don't know why there is a 1,000 year cycle in this interglacial period now. And it starts with the Minoan uh, warm period 3,000 years ago, the Roman warm period 2,000 years ago, the medieval warm period when the Vikings farmed in Greenland 1,000 years ago, and now the modern warm period, which began approximately in 1700. That was the Little Ice Age. So it, it's, it's kind of arbitrary where you say a cycle starts and a cycle ends. You could say that the modern warm period began when the little ice age was at its coldest and began to warm again. Or you could say the modern warm period was halfway between there and where it continued to get warmer. It's, that, that's one of the problems with explaining these things is that it's, it's you know, to pre naming the ages of the earth, like the coniferous era and the age of the dinosaurs, the Triassic and the Jurassic, where the cutoff points on those are, is relatively arbitrary, but it means that it sh it's shifting from one 
phase of climate to another. And the Earth has been doing that all through its history. And what has happened in the last 100 years wouldn't even show up on a chart if it was a mile wide, showing the history of the Earth. The climate of this Earth has gone through so many huge changes. Like, they're saying half a degree more and everything's going to go extinct. That's completely ridiculous and nonsense. The Earth has been 10 degrees warmer than it is now. And people would say, well, wow, what if, if, if it got 10 degrees warmer at the equator, that would be way too hot. And that's true, because when the Earth warms, it does so inordinately towards the poles. So the difference in temperature between the North and South Pole and the equator becomes much less when the Earth is in what's called the hothouse ages, which lasted for 250 million years before this ice age and since the last large ice age, which was the Karoo. The Karoo ice age lasted for 100 million years. We don't know why ice ages happen. Some people think it's because of the tectonic plates shifting and making new passages or closing up old passages in the ocean's currents. That is about the most logical thing that's been put forward, but you, you can't prove that. And so we just don't know. What, it's not cyclical. There's been five major ice ages in the last two billion years, and they have no fixed cycle. They're, it's totally random as to when they appear. And we happen to be in one now. So the great irony of this whole thing, and the Chinese and the Russians know this, they're just playing along. They're not doing what they're doing because they're scared of the climate. And here's, here's my favorite statistic. If you look at an internet search, what is the coldest country in the world? You will find that it is Canada, not Russia. Because Canada has all these islands going up towards the North Pole, that averages it out colder than Russia. We are an average temperature in Canada of minus 5.35 Celsius. That's not exactly sunbathing weather. And that means that we should not be worried about global warming. Because if it's okay to live in Brazil, what, what would be wrong with Canada become, I mean, I don't want Canada to become as warm as Brazil and it isn't going to. But if it did, then the true climate uh, migrants, the climate refugees to, in today's world, are all the millions of people that go south in the winter from the colder countries. Those are the climate refugees. And yet they're telling us, no, no, the people from the south are all going to come north because it's going to get too hot down there. It's complete nonsense. It, it just isn't going to happen. So the fact is, is that we are a tropical species. That's a, another thing that people don't realized. What they, we didn't start on the North Pole. We started on the equator in Africa. That's where we evolved. And the only reason we could come out of there was fire, clothing, and shelter. Because a human being at just under 20 degrees Celsius, naked in the shade, dies of hypothermia. Like 20 degrees, we like our homes inside to be a little bit more than 20 degrees, actually. That's a somewhat comfortable temperature for us. But we're also quite fine with 30 degrees and even 35 if there's a nice warm ocean to go and swim in a couple times a day. So the whole thing is, I don't know whether, you, whether the hoax is the correct word. Uh, it's fake. That's what I call it. Just plain fake. Okay, it isn't so, true. 
So how did we get here? And in your opinion, why is this a dangerous trend? Why not err on the side of caution for something like this? Because their idea of erring on the side of caution is to completely destroy the civilized world. That would be one reason. Um, if, you, if you cut off fossil, fossil fuels today, there wouldn't be a tree left on this earth in five years. You don't, they don't, people don't realize how much energy we're using in order to stay alive in this world and to, and to have a decent standard. You know, okay, go back to washing your clothes in the river, go back to planting all your own food in your backyard, right, and looking after it, and then 75% of the whole population will be in stoop labor toiling in fields if we don't have tractors, for example. Tractors are important. And people, the, the, the real problem, you know, another, another way I put it is mechanization is a wonderful thing. It has stopped more toil and, and suffering in this world than just about anything else you can name. Medicine is another one that you could put in that same category, mechanization and medicine. And, but me, me, mechanization has its downside. And that is that now nearly all the people live in fake urban environments. And they are being told that the people out in the country who are now very few and don't have as many votes as they do, the people out in the country who are drilling and cutting and plowing and mining are the enemy of the earth because they're destroying the planet. Not recognizing that the only reason those people are doing that is so that they can build their cities and have energy to run them and have food to eat in them. How are you gonna eat on the 30th floor of a condominium? You're not gonna be able to grow all your food there. So if they ban fossil fuels and tractors and tractor trailers, which is what brings the food into the city every night and restocks the shelves, the first casualties of that would be the people in the center of the city. And the, the rot would move out from there with mass, uh, mass death and and as I say there wouldn't be a tree left on the planet soon because that's what people would have to use for energy like they did before fossil fuels were uh, utilized and and I'm not saying we should burn up all the fossil fuels uh, the, there's one chapter in my book where I very clearly lay out that the only technology that can actually take out a huge amount of fossil fuels is nuclear energy. And this, this is proven by France. They have 70% nuclear electricity and they emit just over half the amount of CO2 per capita as Germany. Germany even has eight nuclear reactors. They're gonna shut theirs down. Their CO2 emissions will go up when they do. But most people don't realize that buildings in, the, in, in an industrialized world, buildings use 40% of all our energy. Every single thing in a building, from heating to cooling to lighting to, to cooking to appliances, could be run by nuclear energy. Right away, you take out a huge percentage of the fossil fuels that are now being used to provide the energy for buildings. In fact, everything stationary can be run on nuclear energy. It's only transport that is a problem. Cars, trucks, and planes. But shipping, could all be run on nuclear energy. Russia has a icebreaker fleet of five nuclear icebreakers. 
If you can go breaking ice with a nuclear powered boat, you can surely send cars across the Pacific and send oil across the Atlantic with the nuclear powered freighters and oil tankers. So all shipping could be nuclear. All railroads can be electrified, like Japan and much of Europe have done, but there's lots of railroads in this world that are not electrified. So really only it's ground transport and air transport that need fossil fuels. And if we electrified the world with nuclear and saved the fossil fuels for ground transport and aircraft, it would last a lot longer. And most people aren't aware of the fact that you can make liquid fuel from coal. So we should even want to conserve coal and make electricity with nuclear rather than with coal wherever we can. And that's everywhere. Because hydroelectric, for example, Canada has 60% of its electricity from hydroelectric. BC, where I am, has nearly 90%. But, the, but this depends on rainfall and topography. Even if it rains a lot, if you have flat country, you're not gonna have any hydroelectric because it requires elevation. But India, for example, has failed to build many hydroelectric plants in the rivers that are coming out of the Himalayas. And they could produce a huge amount that way. But the environmental movement has stopped it, just like the environmental movement is stopping nuclear energy in much of the West. Whereas China, Russia, and India are now leading in new nuclear bill. And it has nothing to do with CO2 or reducing fossil fuels. It's because nuclear is the future of energy on this planet. Okay, and speaking of nuclear, the uh, area where I am now, the region that is hosting this podcast is a big player in the nuclear space. When you think about, or when you look back on your early days with Greenpeace to the work that you're doing now, what is the biggest thing that has changed? Has your core philosophy changed or has the world changed? No, Greenpeace changed, the, the environmental movement changed from being uh, having quite a strong humanitarian orientation to save human civilization from nuclear war was really what gave birth to much of the environmental movement. Clean air and water were a big part of it too, but nobody's against that, including me. Uh, but the opposition to nuclear energy, the opposition to genetic science in agriculture, these things happened, you know, the nuclear energy one was from the beginning, and it's the only thing I'm sorry I participated in during my 15 years in the leadership of Greenpeace. We were scared by nuclear war so much that even as a scientist, I fell into the trap of lumping nuclear energy in with nuclear weapons. When we should have been lumping nuclear energy in with nuclear medicine as a beneficial use of nuclear technology. And there's simply no doubt about it. I mean, only 60 people have ever been killed by commercial nuclear plants and they were all at Chernobyl, which was a stupid accident. And Greenpeace says 300,000 people died. They apparently have no names or gravestones. And, you know, it's just lies. And what happened when, when I left Greenpeace, it was because, I put it succinctly, you start out as volunteers with noble intentions to save the earth and to save the world Pretty soon you're successful and people start sending you a lot of money and then you hire a lot of employees and then you have a payroll, suddenly you're almost like a business and fundraising becomes one of the higher profiles in the, in the, in the priorities in the situation. And before you know it, you're a racket. 
and that's what happened to Greenpeace. The campaigns that they have focused on over the last 15 or 20 years have, have been mainly fake. Let's look at the giant Pacific garbage patch, twice the size of Texas, which is full of plastic. I have a chapter in my book on that. It does not exist. It simply isn't there. They take pictures from space with satellites and make a composite so that there's no clouds anywhere because there's always clouds somewhere on a given day, but there's some days where, where there's not clouds everywhere. And so they make this composite beautiful satellite picture of the whole Pacific Ocean. You can see the Hawaiian Islands and they are not twice the size of Texas. You cannot see any Pacific garbage patch, period, because there isn't one. There are, there is a lot of discarded fishing gear, including fishnets, which is really the problem, but not because it's plastic, because it's a ghost net that can catch marine animals while it's drifting around there by itself. It's usually damaged nets, they get thrown overboard. Instead, we should have an education program for fishers to bring their damaged nets back to the dock and dispose of them properly. But other than that, the whole garbage patch thing is fake. And so I've been, I've been, I've been approached at audiences where some people take umbrage to my saying such things, even though I showed them the picture. Uh, and all of, on, on the internet, all the pictures of the Pacific garbage patch are photoshopped fakes. You can tell just by looking at them. And so they come up and they say, well, it's only the clear plastic. That's why you can't see it from space, as if clear plastic all joins together in a spot. That was the silliest one. But then they say it's just under the surface, like as if each piece of plastic has a buoyancy compensation device or some such thing. So it's just under the surface where you can't see it. That's not possible. So it finally comes down to people who are still trying to defend this thing, that it's microplastic. Oh, it's invisible. I get it. And that's going to destroy the world? Invisible pieces of plastic in the ocean? No. And my other favorite one uh, is birds, seabirds. They're all, they, they breed on islands way offshore where hardly anybody ever goes, except for Sir David Attenborough. He goes there occasionally to see the albatross. And, and you tells speak us about, about David in your book. Yes. Yes, yes it, it, I, I think I let you see the chapter on walruses. Yes. The chapter on seabirds is even more amazing in a way. It's, it, Attenborough states bald-facedly that adult albatrosses are feeding plastic to their chicks, mistaking it for food. The Smithsonian repeats that, Greenpeace repeats that, and it's all over the internet. It is a lie. Birds are not that stupid. They are giving indigestible objects to their chicks to put into their gizzards where they grind their food. Birds don't have teeth, so they have to swallow their food whole. Only real big predators can tear their prey apart and eat it in smaller pieces, but most birds cannot do that. So when a chick is fed a squid, it goes right down as a whole squid and first goes to a stomach where there's acid like our stomach to start to soften it up. And then it goes to the gizzard where land birds all use pebbles for this. There's lots of pebbles on the land. There's not a lot of pebbles in the ocean. So what 
seabirds use by the mil millions of seabirds, their, their favorite thing is pumice, which is underwater volcanic lava that is foamy, so it floats on the surface. So small pieces of pumice. And there are periods when there's lots of it around, and then there's periods when there's none of it around. When there's none of it around, they resort to bits of hardwood and floating nuts, like nuts that drop into the sea and float out into the ocean. For the last 60 years or so, they have had access to bits of hard plastic. And this has been researched up and down and sideways by many good researchers who've all come to the conclusion that this plastic is being fed to the chicks in order to go in their gizzards and grind their food. And then within about three months, it's, it's ground down and it isn't there anymore. So they have to keep feeding it and adult birds have to keep ingesting indigestible objects all their lives in order to digest their food. So it's a digestive aid. It is not a poison. And then there's this idea that toxics will be leaching out of the plastic into the sea and into the birds and into the fish. There's a reason we package and wrap our food in plastic. It's not because it's toxic. It's because it isn't toxic. That's why we do that. And if people can't figure that out, you know, it just is. Oh, another one that's really funny. <laughs> Nature was smart. Like almost all animals are basically a tube, right? The food goes in one end and the waste comes out the other end. Nature had the smarts to make the in-hole smaller than the out-hole. If you look up in the medical websites, blockage of the bowel, you will not find a single example of it being something that someone swallowed. It's all other things, internal problems. And, but yet Greenpeace and Sir David are going on about how the plastic that the adults are feeding to their chicks is gonna block their intestines and they'll die. And it's true that some chicks do die. There's a million birds out there and child mortality is a problem with birds in the same way that it is with humans but it's not being caused by plastic. And that, that's, so my book, I've given you a few of the chapters in my book and the focus that's there, but uh, one of the funniest ones is a headline in USA Today a couple of years ago. Africa's oldest baobab trees are dying at an unprecedented rate and climate change may be to blame. Well, the oldest trees, what if I had a headline saying China's oldest people are dying? That's pretty well expected, I think, that the oldest die first. And some people don't even think to remember that everything dies, right? So when you write a story about a coral reef dying, right, that is not news. A new one will be born. Coral reefs are not going extinct or anything, but they do die just like all other creatures do. And every living thing, every bacteria dies, every crab dies every human dies. We know that, but we don't really think about it enough to be able to counter a headline like that immediately in your mind. And the next thing they said was unprecedented rate that they were dying due to climate change. There is no inventory of how many baobab trees there are in Africa. They cover an area about the size of the lower 48 US states. And there is no, 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 no knowledge of how many there are. There's probably tens and hundreds of thousands. And so you can't say something is dying at an unprecedented rate if you don't know how many of them there are. 
or how many died. They don't even know how many died. They just made this up. So that's a short chapter. <laughs> so as we, as we round out our time together, because this has been a fascinating talk, but um, I want to know, is there a path forward where I suppose everyone can coexist um, uh, in a, a, a future where information is a little more, I guess, um, perhaps uh, uh, not uh, uh, skewed to one particular point of view or the other. I mean, these are very complicated concepts for the average person. What do you see as the pathway forward in uh, finding a common sense, common ground here? Well, if everybody read my book when it comes out, it would help them a little bit um, because I believe in truth. I have, I'm a scientist who believes in truth and I've, I've studied science for over 50 years deeply, actually 60 years. I, I got the books of knowledge from my parents when I was 12. And uh, it's, it's, I have never stopped studying. And I, I'm, I'm an interdisciplinarian. Ecology is a naturally interdisciplinarian subject to begin with. Uh, I have, here's an interesting definition, the difference between a skeptic and a heretic, because it's really, it's really funny. A skeptic is someone who disagrees with your conclusions. A heretic is someone who disagrees with the assumptions upon which you base your conclusions. And that's a very good scientific analysis because people are accepting the conclusions before they even know whether the assumptions have been tested or not. There is no actual proof that CO2 has had anything to do with the temperature of the earth. It's theoretically you should think it might, but if you go back in the history, it's obvious that it isn't strong enough to overcome, it, that it is a greenhouse gas, that it isn't strong enough to overcome the other elements that are contributing to the changes in the Earth's climate. Because it, it, it's out of sync with temperature for most of the history of modern life, which is like 540 million years. It's out of sync, it's not in sync most of the time. And that isn't how causation works. If you say one thing causes another, it's got to happen every time. You know, it, 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 when, when, when you knock something over with a stick and then you put that thing back there again and hit it with a stick again and it doesn't knock over, then you haven't got a cause-effect relationship. It's a poor analogy, perhaps. But you know what I mean? It's called replication in science. It's actually the final step. Because the first step is observation. And that's why my thesis is so important because if you can't observe something invisible like CO2 and look over and say, look what that dirty CO2 is doing over there, right? You can't do that because no one can see it. It's invisible, tasteless, odorless, colorless. And so people are, are easy prey to fake narratives about what CO2 does. But the fact of the matter is, like, that Nassau fellow, I'm trying to remember his name now, he's with Nassau GISS, which is different from the spaceship people, but he, and he's in New York, uh, and he says CO2 is the control knob of global temperature. This is not a scientific statement to say something is a control knob of something, but that's how he speaks, and that is easily picked up and all of a sudden everybody in the whole climate change movement is saying CO2 is the control knob of the climate. 
when we have absolutely no evidence of that. It is a hypothesis. Assumptions are not supposed to be uh, hypotheses. The assumptions in a, in a proof should actually have been tested. Assumption doesn't mean guess. And it certainly doesn't mean fake. You know, that, that, and, and I, I think what's happened is people have lost an understanding of what the scientific method actually is. And in some cases, even reject science out of hand because they want people to go by what they say and what they think. Thanks for listening. For more information about Dr. Patrick Moore's book or to hear any of our other episodes, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time.